Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season seven, episode five, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today we'll be discussing the 2016 occult dramedy, The Love Witch. It was written and directed by Anna Biller, and it stars Samantha Robinson, Laura Waddell, Jeffrey Vincent Paris, and Gian Keys. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Are you still here? Okay, then let's get this morning started. So, The Love Witch is Anna Biller's second film. Uh, her first film, which is called Viva, was made back in 2007. So, what took Biller so long to make her second film? Well, according to Sophie Monks Kaufman, quote, The Love Witch took seven and a half years to create. It would have taken less time, says Biller, if after writing the script, she hadn't succumbed to a debilitating inner ear infection. What the even heck? Yeah, she had dizzy spells that reoccurred for three years, forcing the shoot to be pushed back as she filled like her time creating the costumes and the props and Anna Biller says quote it didn't look like I would work again it was very bad for a while unquote oh my god that's horrible yeah um speaking of creating the costumes and props the retro set was inspired by the Thoth tarot deck and handmade down to the pentagram rug by Biller herself oh my god yeah and Biller also produced, edited, and composed the music for The Love Witch. She's pretty amazing. Oh my god, she is a jack of all trades, seriously. And a master of all, because this film looks and sounds gorgeous. Seriously. According to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, quote, Anna Biller designed the sets and costumes to emulate the style of classic Hollywood films and collaborated closely with her cinematographer, M. David Mullen, who is an expert on period cinematography. For the driving scenes, rear projection photography was used to give glamour to the lead actress and in tribute to, op- to the opening of the Hitchcock film, The Birds, unquote. Yes, I love that so much. That opening scene is so gorgeous. So the actors also played their parts in a classical presentational acting style seen in the older films. So that's why the acting is terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, for real. It's meant to be. Oh my God. Um, Although many critics of the film assumed that Biller based the film off of like Hammer Horror films and Russ Meyer films such as Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, Biller has made it known that The Love Witch is actually based on some of her favorite classic female-led dramas. 1947's Black Narcissus, based on a nun who falls in love with a man that she can never have. It's also one of Biller's favorite films of all time. 
and 1945's Leave Her to Heaven, which is about a young socialite's obsessive love for her husband. And I wasn't able to see Black Narcissus, but I did watch Leave Her to Heaven, and (laughs) wow. (laughs) Yeah, oh my god. It's a pretty intense film. Um, I'd suggest you guys watch it. It's really good. Hmm. So, The Love Witch is one of the last films to cut an original camera negative on a 35mm film. At its premiere in January 2016, it was the only new, non-repertory, feature film presented at the 2016 International Film Festival, Rotterdam, on 35mm film. The Love Witch was given a limited release in the U.S. starting in November of 2016, and then a limited release in Europe a few months later. It eventually earned about 281000 altogether at the box office, and I was unable to find the budget for the film, but I assume it was successful, since Anna Biller did like everything herself. She also didn't hire a marketing team to promote the film. She apparently promoted the film herself on her Twitter account. So yeah, Biller is a badass. Oh my god, that is seriously impressive. I feel like whenever I get overwhelmed, I'm like, well, if Anna Biller can literally create an entire film herself, yeah, <laughs> I can do it. So... Upon its release, the film received universal acclaim from critics and mixed to positive reviews from general audiences. The Love Witch is listed at number 41 on Rotten Tomatoes' list of top 100 horror movies, and it also made Rolling Stone's list of top 10 horror movies of 2016, The New Yorker's list of best movies of 2016, and IndieWire's list of the best movies of 2016. So, wow. Holy cats. According to the Wikipedia page for the film, The Love Witch was nominated for and won multiple awards as well. It won in a tie for the Trailblazer Award and Best Costume Design at the Chicago Indie Critics Awards. And also it won the Michael Cimino Best Film Award at the American Independent Film Awards. The Dublin Film Critics Circle awarded M. David Mullen for Best Cinematography, and Samantha Robinson, who plays Elaine, she was nominated for Best Actress for the 2017 Fangoria Chainsaw Awards. And then Emma Willis was nominated for the Technical Achievement Award for her hair and makeup on the film by the London Film Critics Circle. Hot damn. (laughs) Oh my god. Frick, dude. This whole film is so stacked. It's amazing. It's stacked, yeah. So The Love Witch feels like a lost film from the past, but with a modern commentary on gender roles and narcissism. According to Sarah Mars, quote, The story is in the grand tradition of witchy women seducing regular Joes, including Belle, Book, and Candle, Bewitched, I Married a Witch, and Practical Magic. The Love Witch is as much about the history of cinema as it is a story about love, desire, obsession, and a strict adherence to gender norms that only serves to make people miserable, unquote. Oh, wow. <laughs> and lastly, to quote Katie Reif, you don't see movies like The Love Witch much anymore. And even in the heyday of occult pulp, they were rarely made with such care. By hearkening back to a bygone era of filmmaking, the love witch scoops up the zeitgeist in its long, slender fingers, gently turning it over before driving a nail through its chest, unquote. With that said, Abby, would you please remind us all of the plot? Sure. 
Elaine is a beautiful young witch and artist looking to start fresh after her husband leaves her and then dies. She moves into an apartment that she rents from Barbara, one of her fellow coven members, and there she is introduced to Trish, the apartment's interior designer, and the two become fast friends. Elaine spends her days painting erotic scenes and making potions to attract a new lover. Elaine is interested in finding love fast, so after dropping off some of her homemade witch jars, candles, and soaps at the local metaphysical store, she meets a professor named Wayne from the local university and makes a move on him pretty much immediately. He tells her that he's got a house in the mountains, and she invites herself there for the weekend, making him dinner and seducing him after making him drink one of her love potions. He falls head over heels, but after they have sex, he becomes clingy and emotionally needy, the exact opposite of what Elaine is looking for in a man. He dies in his sleep, so she buries him next so she buries him behind the house along with a witch jar. She makes her way back into town for her next conquest, Trish's husband, Richard. After she seduces him and makes him a, and makes him drink a love potion one night while Trish is away, he too falls madly in love with Elaine. But Elaine doesn't appreciate his obsession either, and Richard, sick with love, dies from suicide. During the affair, an investigation takes place to find answers for the death of Wayne, led by an officer named Griff. When he shows up to Elaine's apartment to question her, she believes that he is the man she's supposed to marry. They go on a date and stumble across a renaissance fair where they perform a mock wedding. Griff becomes more involved with Elaine, but his colleague warns him to stay away as she is the main suspect in Wayne's murder. Trish soon discovers that Elaine was the other woman in Richard's affair and turns in some incriminating evidence while Elaine's DNA is found at the scene of Wayne's death. The townspeople attack Elaine for being an adultering, murdering witch, but she gets away with the help of Griff, who plans on taking her into custody. She tries to seduce him, but he deflects her advances, so she stabs him to death. In a state of delirium, she imagines that Griff has proposed to her and that the two are going to get married. Oh, thank you, Abby, for that wonderful plot summary. Oh, you are welcome. <laughs> this film is a trip and a half. Um, uh, <laughs> it sure is. <laughs> Yeah, so let's talk about the Bechtel test. Uh, yes, it passes. It passes a few times between Elaine and Trish, and another time between Elaine and Wendy, who is the shop owner. So let's check out Nancy's Dream Team test. That was a little bit harder to pass. Was the supporting cast at least 50% women? Yes, actually. Did a woman write, direct, or produce the film? Yep, and they were all Anna Biller. Oh my god. <laughs> Was the final girl or main character a person of color? No, but I don't want to overlook the fact that Anna Biller is a woman of color. She's, I think she's half Japanese. So that's pretty important. Were there any openly LGBT plus characters in the film? No. So let's start our discussion with witch exploitation oh dear. <laughs> and patriarchal exploitation. <laughs> According to Marlon Gibson, quote, scenes set in a Wiccan coven suggest that far from liberating women, witchcraft as it is imagined in this 1960s and 1970s simply replicated patriarchal exploitation. Elaine strips and submits to sex with the cult leader in a way that looks more like abuse than empowerment. 
Her witch friends are creepy pseudo-feminists, and she herself is a quote-unquote bad witch, trailing madness and death in her wake, unquote. This, of course, isn't a real portrayal of witchcraft, right? Many women, as we've spoken about before, use witchcraft to empower themselves in times of patriarchal oppression. And according to Italian-American feminist Silvia Federici, quote, Witches are the embodiment of a world of female subjects that capitalism had to destroy. The heretic, the healer, the disobedient, the wife, the woman who dared to live alone, unquote. So to see witchcraft used in such a harmful and patriarchal way in this modern film is really jarring. But honestly, we've seen it like this before in older films. So according to Pam Grossman in her new book, Waking the Witch, Reflections on Women, Magic and Power, she says, quote, the 1960s and 70s saw the development of an entire genre of hot and heavy witches. <laughs> oh, my God. Witch exploitation films and pulp publications arrived on the scene with titles like Virgin Witch and Bitchcraft. Featuring images of vixens engaged in any number of naked and depraved occult activities, unquote. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> yes. And many of these depictions of witches, even going as far back as Arthur Miller's The Crucible, were created by, you guessed it, men. So why did Biller have this in her modern film? I mean, I believe it was on purpose. I think it's a commentary on men shaping women to fit their fantasy. Mm. And this occult experience takes place after Elaine's husband leaves her and she's broken and she's looking for a purpose. And I think that witchcraft in this film is masked in like metaphor. Elaine feels like she's doing something for herself, something that is empowering. But what really is happening is that she is giving into the patriarchy because she wants to feel loved by a man again. Yeah. And this love magic is dark and it's toxic. It's not empowering because it's ultimately not for her to love herself. It's for others to love her. And when I say others, I mean men. It's for men. And you can tell that she is still affected by the occult leader. Like she doesn't like him touching her and she becomes upset when she learns that he's still teaching young women about sex magic. Mm hmm. Also, he mansplains love magic to her at one point, which just made my blood boil. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so really, it's like this is sort of a commentary on toxic men taking something that is used to empower women and twisting it yes. and making it feel like it, it's going to fit their fantasy of these sexy, hot and heavy witches, as Pam Grossman says. Uh-huh. Um, so I think that that's fascinating. And Annette Lepique says, quote, Although the group preaches a doctrine of free love, sex magic, and erotic renewal, female members are held to different standards than males. And Elaine and her fellow female witches are initiated into their craft through sex on an altar with the group's aged high priest, who routinely likens the women to goddesses and spouts other cliches about their wild and untamable natures, unquote. Yeah, this actually reminds Reminds me of what we talked about in our Wicker Man episode um, when we discussed that kind of like fake free love. Like not everyone is allowed to choose who they love or how they love on Summer Isle. And I think here it's kind of the same thing. Like free love is being used as a way to exploit both men and women in this movie. 
And I think Elaine, she's kind of an example of what happens when, you know, you continue patterns of sexual abuse and manipulation. Also, I wanted to point out, too, that it's refreshing to see, I guess, a female character as an example of that, because it's not just men who perpetrate. Like, we've discussed before how important it is to show that males can also be victims of abuse. The abuse does happen to the women, but it also happens to the men in this movie because they are manipulated by Elaine. Well, yeah, she literally drugs them. She roofies them. Yes, it's insane. But also, I would like to point out that the coven leaders kind of remind me of like, like you mentioned before, like the pseudo feminism or like the fake feminism and how it's used to actually prey upon women. Like this movie does such a great job of looking at that concept through a critical lens because it shows the toxic traits of both men and women, which I think, again, is extremely important. Like the leader of the coven is using this ideal to like attract women and draw them in. And I think that that can be kind of a tricky thing sometimes, especially in like our day and age now where like you can you have all this access to information and you have all this, you know, stuff floating around about what feminism is and what it looks like. So it kind of wears a mask in this movie. And it's very interesting. It is. It's like a wolf in sheep's clothing. And you feel like that this is a man that you can trust because he says, oh, my gosh, you guys are goddesses. Like, you should be able to, like, show your body and, like, dress in, like, really slim clothing and, like, be sexy and all that stuff. But it's not to empower them. It's to benefit his own sexual desires for them. Yes. Yep, exactly. And that's why this film, I feel like, is so hard to read. I remember when I first watched it, it must have been last year was when I first saw it. I was, I didn't, I didn't actually, I liked it, but I was like, I don't know what the message is. I had a hard time reading it when I first watched it because I, I didn't expect it to be so, like I mentioned before, so jarring. Yes. Like, I was like, what is the message here is the is this is this like the the message of like yes like you should be able to like wear these clothes this clothing and you should be able to like dance sexy and you should be able to do all this stuff without people like making you feel bad for it I'm like okay yeah that's a good message but it's like at the same time it made me feel extremely uncomfortable yes and now that I've thought about it and seen it again I was like you know it, it, that is exactly what what I think the message is. It's that somebody projecting their own desires onto you and making you feel like, oh, yeah, you can do this. You can do that. And that's well, this is what will make you sexy. And it's like, it, but it's not for you. It's for them. Right. And it's right. And I and I can see why, like the women in this, especially Elaine, is so confused about what she wants because she she felt the same way I think I did when I was watching the film. Oh my god, for real! So it's it's crazy. Um, so usually women who are witches are outsiders in films, but Elaine is for the most part accepted into society despite her witchy ways. And yeah, after Wayne's death, some of the townsfolk are nasty to her, and of course there's that ending scene, which is just really scary and terrible. Yes. <laughs> but it's her social and political views that are askew. Her friend Trish feels like she has been brainwashed by the patriarchy because of these views. 
And according to Sarah Mars, quote, Elaine as an outsider is somewhat ironic as she desires nothing but conformity. She strives for a feminine ideal of beauty and submission and seeks a male partner to satisfy not only her sexual appetite, but also her emotional hunger for monogamous love. And that brings us to toxic beauty and feminine standards. Uh, Anna Biller actually is quoted as saying, I wish beauty wasn't so important for women. (laughs) Yeah. And that I feel like speaks volumes for this film. I don't think Elaine's turn to the patriarchy is is entirely her fault because I think like it started even before the whole occult thing even happened. Like in flashbacks, we hear like her father call her stupid and crazy and criticize her weight gain. And then we like see and hear her husband, Jerry, praise her weight loss so many years later. So Jerry also tells her how dinner was like not good enough and like how or it was late and how the house wasn't clean enough. So Elaine has to be like more careful because he's worried for her. Like she's kind of like failing in her feminine ways. So Elaine is like at the mercy of these men who are very close to her, making comments on her looks and her domesticity, and it eventually shows that the consequences are extremely harmful toward her. So this approval from men started at a ripe young age for Elaine and led her to the like patriarchal coven which then leads her into madness because her beauty standards for herself and then her standards for men are also just basically fucked because she feels that men have to be a certain way towards her and then she feels like she has to be a certain way towards men so it's just all over the place Mm. and sarah mars says quote she believes submission is the key to winning masculine desire And that if she is pretty enough and submissive enough, men will love her, unquote. Hmm. You know, I kind of like the dialogue that happens between Elaine and Wayne at the beginning of the movie. Actually, I shouldn't say that I like it. It's kind of weird. But in the beginning, she's talking to him about, like, loving nature and being in nature. And yet she's got, like, this really heavy makeup on and she's wearing this like wig and very sexy outfit and like look I'm not saying that you can only love nature if you're like very crunchy or like (laughs) you can't love makeup and being in nature but here Elaine like clearly feels out of place like her whole character design is just like you're like I'm not really sure you would love to spend your weekend up in the woods no she's she really is truly doing that just to get his attention yeah and like also you never see her without like out in public without makeup or like her fake hair you know Elaine is also like an emotional dumpster for these men she sits there and listens to their problems and they act as if she can fix them and fix all their problems for them because she's their ideal woman or like at least she's trying to be but I guess like be careful what you wish for because (laughs) she ended up poisoning all of them to death so I don't know it's like well it's because like her like they're not only toxic towards her by like thinking like oh my gosh she's like the best thing ever because Mm -hmm. she is super sexy um, and then nothing more but she's also again like this whole like both genders are projecting unrealistic standards on each other because then she 
is like, you, you're not masculine enough for me when they like cry. <laughs> and it's like, you know, and obviously they're all acting like really over the top. Like, oh, but yeah, yeah. The acting is supposed to be over the top. So I'm not really looking at it in that way. I'm sort of looking at it as like these men are being vulnerable and they feel like she will listen. And she's just like, ew, no, I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> so you I know. shouldn't laugh but it's just like so incredibly wild <laughs> it's it is it's insane oh. okay so let's talk about men women and gender roles in the love witch so let's talk a little bit more about the men in this we've already mentioned the father and jerry the husband and the cult leader uh let's now discuss the male victims a little bit more as well and the traditional gender problems in this film So Elaine's first victim is Wayne, who is a professor that she picks up at the park. And she slips him a love potion and he falls really fast and really hard for her. I love Wayne. (laughs) Wayne has like that dad look. (laughs) Um, well, now I feel creepy, Gracie. (laughs) No, you can like older men. That's okay. No, no, it's true. It's true. It's true. But... He reminds me of, like, Kenny Loggins. <laughs> oh, my God. I love it. It's so funny. And if you think about it, all these men have very uh, masculine names. Uh, Wayne, he talks about how much he loves Elaine and how all of the women that he's physically attracted to aren't smart. And then the smart women he's attracted to aren't pretty. So it's such a dilemma. Oh Elaine is like cooing him and she's like, oh my God, you poor baby and all this really crazy stuff. And she keeps telling him like, oh, that must be so hard for you. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I thought she was joking at this point in the movie. I'm like, She's got to be, you've got to be kidding me right now. Well, she kind of is because it's, I don't think she really feels these things. I think she knows that that's what he wants to hear. And so like, that's why she's saying it. And then like he says, I've never felt true love like this before to her. And then she says, I love you back. And this attraction starts out fine, you know, uh, but it gets to be too much. And the traditional masculine qualities that she desires in men are diminished in Wayne when he becomes extremely annoying and needy and overly sensitive. (laughs) But Wayne is so distraught over her that he dies in his sleep. Yikes, buddy. Yeah. So right before she buries him in the yard, she sees a deer, which I thought was really interesting because she has been painting these paintings in her in her apartment. Mm-hmm. And in a few of them, there's a deer in the background. So I thought that was interesting. Um, deer actually represent femininity, sensitivity and gentleness. So very feminine qualities, which is what Elaine is striving for. Um, when she buries Wayne, she buries him with a a witch bottle that contains rosemary, which wards off evil spirits, and it also represents the goddess of love, Aphrodite. The witch bottle also contains her urine, which is normally used to ward off witches, but it can also be used to ward off evil spirits in general. So if a witch uses it, that's usually what they use it for, it's just evil. And a bloody tampon is also in the witch bottle. And the menstrual blood also wards off evil. And they mentioned this before, like Wendy, the shop owner, she tells Griff like, oh, like these ward off evil. But like, this is why, because literally everything that she's put into this bottle wards off evil in some way. Uh, I also love how Elaine has like this moment. She has this internal monologue 
to explain to us how most men have never even seen a bloody tampon? Yes. And then the cops are like, what is this? (laughs) When they find the bottle. (laughs) Yeah. They're like, what is that? And they're like, I have no idea. (laughs) Oh, my. And the woman just starts crying. She's like. (laughs) (laughs) It's so dramatic. Yeah. Like we've talked about before in our Carrie episode, like it should be normal. But it's interesting that these are all things that she's buried with him to ward off evil because I'm I'm guessing I don't know much about witch bottle witchcraft, but I'm guessing that this is sort of to ward off like him as a ghost. Oh, yeah. And like to keep his like neediness away from her. Oh, my God. That's what I'm guessing. I love, I think I love Wayne too because he's the one who points out like her duality. And I think that's a really important part of the story because Elaine's duality really is what destroys every relationship she tries to have. So she just ends up like sabotaging herself in the end. And like Wayne like notices it immediately. He's like tripping balls on his living room floor and he's like, you're like two different people. (laughs) Well, yeah, like the outside of her dress is black, but the lining of her dress is rainbow. (laughs) (laughs) I line all my clothing. (laughs) And then I remember Anna Biller made all of those costumes. So then I'm like, wow, this is pretty great. (laughs) I know. She's incredible. You know, what's also interesting is that Wayne liked her. Before she gave him the potion. Yes. So she didn't need to do that. And I think that's also really interesting is that he was already kind of into her before she drugged him. That that scene always makes me feel like, wow, I wonder what would have happened if she had just let it happen naturally and not tried to force his undying love upon her. Like, he probably would have just been into her anyway. You know, Griff mentions that in the bar at the end of the movie, too, where he's talking about, like, how women are and how men are. And he's like, you find... It wasn't at the bar. It was when they were at the Renaissance Fair having the mock wedding. And he's like... You find one that you like and suddenly it becomes too much and they end up smothering you to death. And I, that's that's what that felt like with the whole Wayne scenario. Like it was just overkill, literally. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that was her mistake was that she just assumed that he wouldn't be he she just assumed that he wouldn't be into her. Like, I don't know. Right. This movie's nuts. OK, so let's move on. Let's talk about Richard. Um this is sort of like a step further. Like, this is where I was like, what is this movie trying to say? Because, like, Richard is married. He's married to Trish, her best friend. And, like, I think she she goes after him because, like, he, she feels like he won't be obsessed with her because he's already married. What? <laughs> right. And, like, I don't even know if Elaine sees as what she has done is wrong because she meticulously plans the seduction while Trish is away. And I mean, she almost kind of does it from the moment she meets him at the beginning of the film. She kind of has her eye on him, which is so wild. And like she gives Rich a love potion too. And then she has sex with him. But then when Rich begins to fall heavy for her, she's disgusted by his lack of faithfulness and his obsession to 
like and so she just rejects him she's like no she doesn't want nothing anything to do with him and he's so beaten down and he begins to like drink and he's like going crazy and then he dies by suicide it's so weird like it it's kind of like a role reversal really like it's almost like elaine is that like characterization of like the male stereotype that sleeps with women and then slut shames them Yes, it is. And you're right. It is a complete reversal, uh, like dynamic. Like here she is who wants she wants to be more feminine. But the choices that she's making towards these men are arguably very masculine. Yeah, like toxic masculinity, not like not like the good, healthy kind. (laughs) No, you're right. Yeah. But it's we also see that like pattern starting to develop like Elaine doesn't know what she wants or needs out of life so she's trying to fill that void with men who aren't really right for her while simultaneously claiming to be in love with them so like she can't make up her mind she does it to how many men in this film four and Richard is like her third conquest (laughs) it's very sad like it's sad but it's not because the men are kind of shitty too so it's like well It does a great job of, like, (laughs) blaming both parties, I guess. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. So the last man that is in Elaine's life is the police officer, Griff. And interestingly enough, he doesn't need a love potion to fall for Elaine like the other two men. So we can assume that his love for Elaine is real, which Elaine seems to be very thrilled about. And why wouldn't she be? Like, finally, someone who loves her for her And even his name, Griff, is undeniably very masculine, and it matches, like, Elaine's desire for him. And here's a quote from Sarah Mars again. She says, quote, They go on a date. They stumble upon a Renaissance fair in which they participate in a theatrical wedding ceremony with Elaine's coven, signifying their attainment for the traditional gender roles of husband and wife. Griff can't overlook the evidence tying her to Wayne's murder. For this failure, for being unable to love her as she does him, Elaine murders Griff. Griff is the worst insult to her effort, as he is not overwhelmed by love potion, but is simply rejecting Elaine herself and thus her fantasy for their life together. She is disappointed repeatedly because no one is just one thing, right? And even the hyper-masculine Griff isn't just defined by his manliness. Elaine attempts to fit everyone into her ideal of submissive femininity and dominant masculinity, an echo of mid-century gender roles, but all she accomplishes is several murders and her own failure. Her quest for love is unhealthy and childishly simplistic. Adhering to harmful gender stereotypes we recognize as outdated as the old-fashioned production design of the film, unquote. So, of course, there are obvious tensions between the genders in this film, like we mentioned. Like, everyone is sort of at fault here. And it just proves how forced gender roles on oneself and others is damaging. And Anna Biller says of her film, quote, The Love Witch is about how people project onto one another. Elaine is projecting something onto the men, which isn't really fair to them. She's projecting this idea that they'll be her savior and her hero, but they're also projecting things onto her that are just as toxic, which is that she'll be their ideal woman, someone who's always beautiful, always subservient, always pleasing them and serving them, unquote. Yeah, that's there you go. Like, this is the meaning of the film. And this film doesn't actually take place in the 60s and 70s because, like, there are characters that have some modern cars and some cell phones and stuff. Um, but the gender issues presented in this film 
is like not a comment on the past. It's, in my opinion, a comment on how we haven't really changed. And that's why I think that it takes place in modern times, but everything around it is very similar to the 60s and 70s. So let's talk about the psychology of love, fantasy, and narcissism in this film. I want to start off this topic with another quote from Anna Biller, and this is an interview she did with Sophie Monks Kaufman. She says, quote, I am not an expert in psychology, but what I do know is that our desire for basic nurturing love depend develops early. From the all-encompassing feeling of love that an infant feels for its mother, the oceanic feeling that ends up becoming lost, they're trying to get back that feeling of unconditional love. Everybody is so busy with their lives that the only way to find that kind of love again is through a romantic liaison, unquote. And that's sort of what Elaine is trying to do in this film. She's trying to feel unconditional love because it's lacking in her life. And I kind of wonder if it's lacking in herself too, you know? It's like no coincidence that the Three of Swords tarot like falls out of her handbag at the beginning of the film and then it shows up in all of her tarot readings throughout the film. Like that card is known to stand for sorrow and heartbreak. And Lynette Lepique notes, quote, throughout the film, Elaine's motivations exist in the space located between self-interest and regressive self-hate, a psychological fragmentation that doesn't allow for any of Elaine's seductions to turn out as she hopes. Each man Elaine pursues inadvertently dies as a result of her attempts to transform sex magic into love magic, unquote. So it's without a doubt that this film explores female fantasy and pathological narcissism. Um, Abby, you, do you want to like touch on like some of the subjects on psychology in this film? Because I don't know anything. <laughs> I mean, yeah, definitely. I think it's safe to say that like Elaine is absolutely a sexual narcissist. Um, and in an article from Psychology Today... This is described as a grandiose sense of one's sexual prowess, which, in the mind of the sexual narcissist, entitles him or her to engage in acts of emotional and physical manipulation at the partner's expense. Significantly, sexual narcissism is marked by a lack of true intimacy in the relationship. The partner is merely exploited to fulfill the narcissist's selfish needs. So... This is super interesting because all along, Elaine is saying that she's giving men what they want and she's letting them live out their fantasies, but she's actually destroying them. She is like a black widow and she uses the same manipulation on these men that was used on her. She's projecting that inner misogyny in a super dangerous way. It's wild, man. It's so it's wild. Sad. It's very sad. It is. You're right. This film does have a sense of sadness to it. And it's it's a drama comedy type film. But they're, they're, especially this, this ending, which we're going to talk about now, n- nobody wins. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah. you just feel kind of lost and sad for Elaine and all these guys and then Trish even too. Like, you just feel like really upset. Like, it starts out really colorful and like, ooh, the love witch. Like, oh my gosh. Like, here we go. Oh my God. Where is this going? Oh my yes. God. Look at this. <laughs> oh my God. Yes. And you just sort of fall into this hole of sadness for these characters. It's true. It's dreadful. <laughs> dreadful. Yes, that's a great word. Dreadful. Um, okay, so let's let's dive into our final thought. What drives Elaine to murder Griff? Oh. I kind of like Annette Lepique's view on this. She says, 
positing Elaine's murder of her lover as what happens when a history as an abuse survivor and the pressures of living as a high femme woman in a man's world merge to form a fragile, cracking psyche is not the only way the love witch can or should be read. Rather than understanding Elaine's murder as signifying her madness, it might be more interesting to think of it as an allegory of transgressive birth, as she frees herself from the man who would be the death of her, very literally in the case of the police officer, and is therefore able to honestly negotiate her own desires and fantasies, unquote. And yeah, like she actually imagines Griff with like a skull face, like she imagines him as death. For me... When I got to the end of this film, I kind of looked at it as, like, Elaine finally getting to be the one who, like, penetrates, basically. Like, she's so worried about pleasing other people at the cost of her own sanity. And, like, while she maybe gets a little bit of pleasure out of what these men give her, it's not enough for her to stop looking for that one guy. And then when she finally finds him and he doesn't fall for her manipulation... She kills him in a display of power. And, like, this whole movie feels like it's about what we do as humans to sabotage ourselves. Like, when Griff doesn't give her what she's looking for, she stabs him in the heart, which is, like, the center and the origin of, like, the blood in your body, which I thought was super interesting because there's so much, like, red in the beginning of the film. When she meets Griff for the first time, it's kind of like the foreshadowing to this. Like, she's wearing all red and she's driving a red car and, like, she moves into the house with these red suitcases. And then by the end of the film, she's, like, covered in Griff's blood. So it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy for her. Like, yes, because her that one painting that she's, like, working on from the very beginning is her i i would assume it's 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 a woman at least in the in the painting is stabbing a man yeah and taking his heart yeah oh my gosh this movie's so good everyone watch it yeah (laughs) please please let us know what you think well that's it That's it. We're done. (laughs) That's it for this week's episode of Good Morning Nancy. Treat yourself to some Good Morning Nancy merch and check out our shop. We've got coffee mugs and sweatshirts and t-shirts and more. Head on over to goodmorningnancy.com slash merch and click the shirt icon and that will take you right to our shop. And if you're not already a patron, go to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy for some sweet extra content in your coffee. We upload full-length episodes early, give away Patreon gifts, and review horror trailers and TV shows and new movies over there too sometimes. So become a patron, won't you? Yeah, you can also help support the show by following us on social media. Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. You can also help us out by telling a friend and spreading the word about our show. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye. Bye.